today, I thought it would be good, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of fascinating news going on, as, as we were talking about earlier. But I think what that means is, is we, have, we have the chance to talk about a, a couple of broad topics, weighing in with our various expertise and our, uh, our surveying the landscape constantly. The, uh, what's, what's the name of the people in the military? It's not your, uh, it's the Ordnance Survey. I feel I feel like I feel like that was a big unfortunately, you know, so many evolutions in civilization come from military needs, but I feel like the concept of an ordnance survey was a huge evolution in civilization where like, you know what we need is accurate maps. That would be cool. Uh that don't have like dragons on them. And have, have Yeah, it's fascinating, you know. I worked for the ordnance survey in the UK for a, for a period. Wow. What, what are the chances? Yeah. Huh. I know, I know. It is fascinating work as well, the way that they capture all the data and the way that they process it. Uh, we were building an event-driven system with lots of uh, RabbitMQ in there and microservices and stuff. It was pretty cool. It was good. So yeah. uh, hello, Ordnance Survey. Are you still there? Did you get to, did you get to go to some like like giant like Victorian-style rooms with like big drawers that you could pull maps out of and people would be like, oh, yeah. That's the map that, uh, that, you know, Drake or someone used to fight the Spanish. It's right there. Please don't touch it. Yeah, I think, I think maybe there was sort of a heritage room. But the Ordnance Survey in the UK is a fabulous brand new building down near Southampton. Very modern. Lots mm. of glass, lots of concrete structure set in parkland. It's beautiful. So really, really nice. If you appreciate architecture, you'll appreciate that building. It's a yeah. very nice building. Does it get a little marker on the map? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not there. It's not on the map. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I've it's also worked... Anymore, is it, actually? My dad was into geography. He was like a town planner as a job. And all I remember growing up as a kid was we had a bookshelf in our corridor full of all the ordnance surveys maps, oh, all, yeah. you know, nicely numbered, left to right, et cetera, just shelf upon shelf of every map across the whole UK you could take out. And now, of course, you just pull out your phone and do Google Maps and it tells you turn left and that's all you oh, ever see of them. That's fun. One of those that, things that's, that's lost, I think. That's, that's a better hobby than memorizing the train tables, probably. But that, that's, that sounds like fun. I also spent time working for the naval mapping people who have a completely different building. Uh, which is near where I live in the southwest. So, uh, hello to the National Hydrographic if you're out there as well. Uh, yeah, have you ever worked for Simon Wardley mapping? Because you could complete the whole thing. It could be your <laughs> career theme, you'd be done. Uh, or space mapping, maybe, uh, maybe with oh, Space yeah. Force or something. Ooh, you know, yeah, yeah, the mapper. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, well, it's good to know that they have a modern building. I, I, I got taken on a personal tour of uh, Parliament once, and it wasn't quite this bad. But but every now and then it was basically like, oh, yes, the last time this room was painted was before the fire of 18 whatever. And, and so <laughs> they still have chamber pots there, don't they? As well, they? <laughs> Maybe. No, but I, I, jo I joke, but it was it was a great tour. It was like I think I think the highlight of it is we walked by some, um, I guess, yard and uh, like courtyard. And, and my friend was like, oh, yeah, that's the original Scotland Yard right there. And, and now it just had like, you know, a little uh, a little hut in it. But whatever, it's always fun to uh, see stuff like that. Well, there's your uh, tourism section of, of the episode. And speaking of uh, space cartography, if that's even what you would call it, does, is cartography a two-dimensional concern or is that three-dimensional? Well, 
there, well, I remember when I was there, there you know, there, there is a three-dimensional aspect to it. So sure, take, sure. Take map when they when they do mapping map imaging, it's rarely it, they do use satellite, but you know, when you sort of zoom right down, that's yeah. mostly still aeroplanes, or it was at the time. Yeah, 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 those from two different angles so that they can measure can the do, heights of things. Yeah, now they have lidar and stuff, so you can have uh, all sorts of fun. But but I I mean like I feel like if you are mapping space, that is that is like the obviously such a big, as far as we know, infinite thing that there must be something beyond cartography, that is the the science of of mapping infinite space. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe and not. every and every time you see like an astrophotography image or a, or you know a JWST image or something, and you see all those all those sort of stars and galaxies in there. There's no appreciation of three dimensional depth. So mm. for a lay layperson, you've got no idea whether the thing you're looking at is really close or really far away or really big or really small. You just got it's just a flat image so well, they're all far away just that, relatively speaking they're all far yeah that's true but <laughs> yeah. i i find that fascinating you know it's like oh, I, I like this i love this image but i could really do with knowing the depths of stuff you know so some sort of model would be fantastic and they do yeah. do a lot of modeling but not everything obviously yeah that that's 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 great I, i'm gonna have a lot of map we'll have a, a special holiday episode this year called uh map talk with Ben, and we'll figure, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see what the relationship between event-driven architectures and maps are, and uh, how 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 that works out. Whether you're on sea or land, uh, which which I think I think would be handy. Well, so the first thing I thought would be fun to talk about. Now, there's been a lot of uh, I don't know. I mean, tell me if I if, if I'm right here, Ed, because you you scan the airwaves and the the internet waves, uh, the the intrawebs as we used to call it a lot. But I feel like there's been a lot of discussion about not only cloud costs, how much does public cloud cost? No one really talks about private cloud costs, which which no. is fine. Because nobody knows what it costs them. <laughs> and, and, but then also, I think this has evolved. Maybe I, I, I couldn't tell you what the, the chain of events that set this off was. But it's it's evolved into a cloud repatriation talk. Maybe you could I could just go search for the phrase cloud repatriation in Google Trends and see when that started to spike. But I feel like there's where there's a big uptake in this idea of uh, what what we the people you know the the people using cloud are going to be interested in going forward for the next year is figuring out not only controlling our costs but if it makes sense to bring workloads back to. I don't know back to where, but out of public cloud. I think probably what they mean is kind of like managed hosting somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, and in fact, there is uh, just a pull from one recent article. The most recent one uh, was uh, it, it was kind of a, a roundup of a bunch of CIOs being interviewed and talking. And uh, they were just saying how this is a priority for them. And, and then, you know, as with all these kind of predictions, who knows what will be happening in 2024? I feel like in the past four to five years, we've learned that predicting more than 12 months into the future is just a fool's errand, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, But let's say nothing crazy happens, like has never happened in the past three-year periods going back since the, the dawn of time. Uh, by 2024, IDC says that uh, like 70% of, of uh, companies are going to have spent a lot of time worrying about costs. Now, they worded it a lot more baroquely than that to make another architectural reference. But it's basically like that's going to be a big deal uh, that, that people are doing. 
Um, so what, uh, what have you been seeing out there, Ed, about cloud cost, cloud repatriation? What's, what's happening there? Yeah, much the same kind of stuff, right? Huge interest in FinOps. I mean, that's been bubbling along for quite a while. And I, I tend to see stuff and just think, yeah, more FinOps. It's a bit like more platform engineering. It'll be people talking about the same things. Doesn't mean anyone's kind of got it under control. But it's obviously just the, the pullback in the economy, isn't it? And suddenly everyone is seeing mm. these bills, which have been going up for a while. And then they're suddenly like, okay, we need to cut them. And then realizing whether they can and how to do that. And I think there's there's a bit of the knee jerk about the whole thing, right? Well, we could just pull it back on prem where it didn't have these escalating costs because you didn't know what it cost and you'd pay for it up front mostly. So until you could pack it full or you could just do, whereas cloud oh, makes it yeah. more transparent. And then suddenly you're like, oh, that is a lot of cost, isn't it? And suddenly people worrying about it just because, you know, purse strings are tighter than they used to be. Um, you know that that's you 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 mentioned a thing I'd forgotten of that comes up frequently, and that is if you've if if you've signed these like two three year agreements about basically you're signing up for a floor of capacity, the minimum amount of capacity that you're going to use that you pay for up front. I get. I mean, it's probably the case that a lot of those like two to three year contracts are like now midway through. And companies are kind of be if they haven't moved, use that capacity. They're kind of like, oh, we better do something, uh, which is, you know, a little bit of like good business case career management and a little bit of fallacy of sunk costs that, that you're kind of like looking at there. But whatever, the, yeah. you know, Actually, a very good, a very good example of that. I don't know if any of you saw this kind of what well, I think of as a twit piss right back in the day. I've been used to have these little arguments on Twitter. The old one caught everyone's attention. There was a great one that I saw earlier this week, which was exactly around this. So it was around Twitter as a company not paying AWS's bills. Um, as they've sort of seen, you know, they've decided to stop paying a load of bills for various offices and everything else. But one of these is they decided they weren't going to pay Amazon the 70 million they owed them or something. So Amazon in turn were then going to retaliate and not do any pay for any of the advertising that they were paying for. Um, mm. But the article had gone on to say that Twitter had a contract, had a three or four year contract, I think, with AWS which they were not using, essentially, because they planned to move their kind of main timeline onto AWS and then decided not to. Uh, and ah. actually committed a much bigger contract with Google Cloud and a plan to move everything to Google Cloud. And I think, you know, I, who knows, right? You could guess and speculate about why they're not paying their bills. But it was an interesting one of, again, right, as a big company, you've committed to one cloud platform, then committed to another. Now you're sort of reneging on the first You've got some capacity there. You've got everything paid for, but it's not as simple as, right, just stick it all over on that cloud, is it? Um, and then, obviously, the whole just not paying your bills, watching your service collapse. But, um, yeah, definitely one of those FinOps comes to bite when times get tougher. And, obviously, Twitter, more than most, a year ago, were in a, a very different place to sign those kind of contracts. Now, now Ben, as someone who worked on uh, applying uh, event-driven architectures to uh, naval uh, wave patterns or something. <laughs> I, for, I forgot the fancy word that you use there. Like when, when you were doing that and just in general, like with, with the developer mindset, like how often do you think about like the cost of, of the architectures you're choosing and, and like uh, the stuff you're doing? Like does that, do you think, do you think that comes up for developers? I, 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 you know, my experience in, in enterprises, it's it's rarely uh, something that you would ask developers really to worry about. They've got enough to worry about already. So worrying about 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 cost is probably a stretch too far. But as an architect, 
working in those places, you know, an enterprise architect, a cloud architect or whatever, then yeah, very much so, you know, and cost can be a big driver for whole initiatives, you know, new new projects that you want to deliver could all, could all be about reducing cost. And that's always been the case. So I don't think that's changed. It's just the, the cost center is changing. The, the, mm. the cost center is now the cloud and it used to be on-prem. <laughs> so, right, so right, right. You just got this sort of shift in uh, in appreciation for how much stuff uh, costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it seems as I've as I've uh, uh, observed all the FinOps cloud cost stuff from the side. Right, it seems like as as when it comes to so much money related stuff, a lot of it just has to do with like to use a fancy word, getting visibility and just like understanding where the the spend is. And like, you know, I'm also thinking when I was a developer long, long ago before any of this, there was another way that you ensured developers didn't spend a lot of money. And that was just because it was physically impossible to. It was just like, you have this server, that's yeah. it. <laughs> right? <it's> <laughs> and so there, there was no, there was no uh, elasticity or burstability that you could have, whereas you know, I would imagine, again, it's back to like the visibility and controls, just as you were saying, Ben, being a different model of operating, that if you don't have those, you could say the word quota, but if you don't have those quotas or controls in place, it's just like, it's easy to like go crazy uh, with, with what you're doing. It's kind of like, you know, one of my favorite uh, transatlantic, uh, would you call this, I think this is too, too silly to be a dichotomy, but like in America, you can have all the napkins that you want. And over here in continental Europe, you get one, if that, right? <laughs> and so like, so you can imagine that we, and, and this is the same generally in, in, uh, in, uh, in toilets or WCs or bathrooms, as, as we would all say, there's always a very, I feel like, I feel like there's a shortage of napkins over here on continental Europe. But that means that like, of course, because you have unlimited supplies of napkins that are freely available, people just go hog wild with the napkins back in the States. But over here, very conservative once you, once you control the napkin usage. What a unique observation. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, I, uh, uh, I, I feel like, you know, and, and going back to, you know, to close it out a little bit, like, well, there's two things I wanted to mention. One, you were making me think, Ed, that like, and, 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 Tell me if you experience this, but I think maybe a lot of cloud cost stuff, it's easy to like get really like worked up about it, but it's just like a normal, somewhat boring thing. It's just like, yeah, you should, uh, this isn't a new thing that we've discovered. You've just got to like keep track of what you're spending. That's, that's probably what you should do. There's not a new phenomena, which, uh, I'm sure that would be Corey's advice as well. Corey Quinn. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just, it's just like, it's, there you go. it's, but, it's kind of. But... But what I like is that it's also created a new market, hasn't it? There's a brand mm -hmm. new market, uh, an evolving market for cloud cost tools and products, you know, and they're becoming extremely popular because no one understands their cloud bill. <laughs> it's just yeah. massive and sprawling and covers all sorts of stuff. I mean, I get I work for VMware, obviously, and I get cloud bills because I use different cloud providers. So um, I can see my cost and I can see the cost that I'm racking up. Some of it, I don't even remember doing it. It's like, what? I don't even remember doing that. I definitely don't need that. Why won't it delete? Mm, yeah. And there's always another bucket somewhere or a kind of, well, these costs are part of EC2. Which bit of it? Where is it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
cracking down that so, little individual bit, even at a small scale. Exactly. Mm. So tooling like um, VMware Aria Cost, for example, that's based on cloud health and stuff. They're very, very popular, and, and it's a growing, um, you know, it's a growing market. So I, I like the fact that it's created a new market, and that, that folks can start to get that visibility that they need on their uh, cloud bills and have it wrangled into some sort of shape where you can actually understand it and start to control it. That's totally. good. That innovation in that area is really helpful because it wasn't great from the cloud providers, I would have said. Uh, I don't think so. Not looking at my Amazon bills and stuff, I wouldn't have said it was that, that great. So I think it's good that there's been that innovation there. It's been very helpful. And yeah, you're you know, the sound the, providers step up now, aren't you? A little, I think, you know, they see that obviously people are tightening their belts and are a bit more concerned. I think it was Microsoft joined the FinOps Foundation this week. Um, but even in their quarterly statements, they've all been saying they see belt tightening and they are sort of stepping up to help people with bills because they know if they don't, they'll just get hurt even more by people cutting back. And, and you know, I'll, I'll add one, uh, you know, I think, I think a major motivator for, uh, paying close attention to this, right? Is like if every now and then I try to track like how much, how many workloads are in cloud or versus not cloud and what, what kind of like the rate of migrating stuff is. And uh, I think uh, there's, there's a survey from O'Reilly from last year, their cloud adoption survey from 2021. They haven't published a 2022 one. So who knows how this has changed, but like uh, there was basically like, I think about half of the people who responded said they, that in 2022, the year that just passed, they were planning on moving 50% of their workloads to public cloud, which first of all, unless they had already moved about 45% or 48% of their workloads is an impossible goal. So they're just setting themselves up for like, you know, picking up the iron triangle and jamming the pointy end straight into their forehead, uh, like is, is what's <laughs> going to happen there. Uh, but there's obviously and and you know, in I'm sure y'all have these conversations too, right? But I have conversations with I think I've had, let's see if this phrasing works. I've had more conversations in the past year than I think I ever have with just like mainstream organizations who are like, yep, this is the year we have to move everything. Or, you know, we're actually moving all the stuff uh, instead of just like, whereas the conversations I used to have is like, we want to be ready to move things. Like we want that flexibility, but I think people are actually doing it now. And so when you have that huge, like, uh, movement of things now's a really good time to make sure that you uh you have your costs under control uh because i think maybe that's also what a little bit of what drives it as you were kind of saying ed as people are finding this is i think there's been a lot of talk in in the the overall like mainstream of uh moving to public cloud but not that many workloads have actually moved so now it's time to uh figure that out so we'll see. Hopefully when O'Reilly, we'll see if they do their 2022 and, and it'd be fun to revisit if uh, people moved all their workloads or not. That would be that would be great. Now, the other thing I wanted to go over just uh, I haven't, you know, uh, true to form, I haven't actually gone to read the CD Foundation survey yet. I don't know if, if, if you two have, but I've read summaries of it. That's my favorite way to read things is to read things about things. Uh, summaries, I, I think is handy. But you know, another thing I'm always interested in tracking is how much build automation or continuous integration and continuous delivery people have in place. And, um, you know, I, I, I've been tracking not for all 13 or 14 years, but every now and then I go in and I find the, uh, it used to be called like state of agile survey or something. 
and I think CollabNet made it. Now they've got some new name for their company, but they've been doing a survey about Agile's use for a long time. And so they had a question about using CICD. And basically it's been, it's kind of leveled off in the past three or four years at about 45% or so. Uh, and it's kind of like stayed there. And you see this in other surveys. And then I came across recently another survey from the, the Continuous Delivery Foundation that basically said, uh, it was it was phrased optimistically, which I'm trying to be as, as I go through life, be more optimistic. Uh, so the optimistic phrasing was that 40% of developers use either CI or deployment. Uh, and essentially, uh, and one in five uses uh, both of them, right? So... I can't do the math in the air of what that, that means. But to put it the cynical way, 53% of developers don't use CICD, right? Which seems like a little bonkers that they're, uh, I guess there's an or in there, so maybe they're doing CI. But let's just say that anywhere between 40 and 60% of people writing software in the world are not automating their builds fully. Now, doesn't that seem a little bonkers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I think. I think. I'd, I, I'm sorry. I, did, I should have probably prepped more on that. But I, I, I'd love to know more about that survey because, yeah, my my gut tells me it's entirely wrong. That 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 idea that there's only forty percent using either CI or CD. Not in my experience. No, I, I can't think of an, a single environment that I ever walked into as a consultant that didn't have at least CI in place. Uh, so so in my experience, it's like 100%. They always have at least CI. CD is a different story. Having that good sort of path to production uh, ready mapped out as a decent supply chain and having control over that supply chain, that's I would say that was much rarer, um, you know, much, much less likelihood that you'd walk into, uh, you know, a bank or a, or a car company or whatever, and they, they would necessarily have all that stuff already in place. Um, but CI, definitely, there's absolutely no one I can think of wasn't wasn't building, uh, building software using CI. Unless the, the survey is particularly broad and covers maybe things that don't get CI'd a lot. Like you, if you went on to GitHub and looked at lots of software that's written in open source, for example, you know, little packages for this, that, and the other. Mm. Maybe they're not CI'd the whole time. Maybe they're just built on, you know, built locally. Uh, and that's fine because the people who need it know how to build it locally. They do that and off they go. And you see that a lot in Linux. Too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you raise a good point that like, I think the most interesting way to slice this would be by project size. Right. Like, like, because, you know, a small thing maybe doesn't need um, that much CICD, let alone like, and, and you bring, bring up another good point that if you're doing like a framework or a library, you don't really deploy that. <laughs> like, like, but also like, generally, I, I, I would think that the larger your app, the more build automation you should have. <laughs> and, you know, at, at, a, at a pretty low level. And so like, it would be interesting to see for like large significant applications, like those that were not automated, there's probably something wrong going there or trying to be optimistic. There's probably some room for improvement uh, that, that you could bring in. I think the answer, I think that, I think that the breakdown is, is even more simple than that. It's are you working in a team or not? 
If, if oh, you're working yeah. in a team, you've probably got CI. If if you're working on something that's you know passion project, an open source project, maybe something that there's a very small number of people working on, or that is not necessarily um, something that you need to deliver into an enterprise environment, then you know maybe it doesn't matter so much. You know that's fine. But um, if you're working in a, in a team in an enterprise, I, I would think it would be almost 100. percent I can't I can't think of scenarios where I haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to go back and look at the the state of agile survey because I think I think the definition they used uh, is like that old uh, the old like Martin Fowler, Jez Humble, whatever that book is, right? And there's like three or five criteria for each of the CIs and CDs that they go over. But it is always like with any kind of survey, especially surveys about a software development practice you use you're putting a lot of trust in the people responding on the survey to have the same definition as you, <laughs> right? Like, like you know, just saying that you automate your build, you might mean something different than if you have continuous integration versus, or not, like all sorts of things like that. But it is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to continuously look at. But what I do like is where, you know, CD is maturing a lot and, and there's a lot of talk now around secure software supply chains. And that's something that I'm particularly passionate about and that I, I see a lot of value coming from because it sort of it, it really sort of formalizes that path to production more and adds more security into that path to production so that you've got more confidence about the code that you're running you know it's all mm. about having confidence now that the code that you're running in production should be there and has a right to be there because it's met all the criteria you want it to meet a lot of enterprises don't necessarily have that confidence about every workload and the problems that can arise from that can be significant yeah yeah and maybe you know if you pushed CICD closer to what you're talking about there, then I could see that the numbers were, were a lot less, right? If you get these, uh, these higher level benefits. And then, well, okay, so then finally, let, let, me, let, me, let me try one of my little jokey things because you're bringing up something like, I've been, I've been uh, uh, watching a lot of, that we, we've, I've been consuming a lot of videos uh, that, that our friends and coworkers have been making about supply chain stuff recently. And you brought up something that I haven't really like put into words too much. And that is, it seems like some stuff going on in the supply chain world is all about like kind of separating out the CI from the CD and basically saying like, we're going to establish a, su a supply chain and like whatever y'all developers do to get your little bit into this small part of the supply chain, like we don't really care about how you do it. We just want to make sure you did the right thing. And so in effect, these things are very separate. And here, here you go. Here's my little funny thing. Instead of it being a slash between CICD, we're going to convert it to a pipe. We're going to erect a wall there so that there's more separation between the, uh, the two things so that we, uh, we separate them. There's, there's a little something to think about through the week. Can we, uh, can we work on that? Because I'm envisioning we're going to have a slide where this slash slowly animates to turn into a pipe. <laughs> and... and and then and then we'll just like do that that clap out thing we'll, and then the lights go out and the uh, the house band comes back out to uh play the rest of their keynote at 9:30 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> well, I th I, like I the think <laughs> I, I and I think that the two conversations that we've had today are related. So this, you know, supply chain stuff where 
we're worried about code confidence. It came up in the survey about cost that for the mm. first time, cost has actually become more important to some people than cybersecurity. Oh, so huh. it's it's like okay, so it's, cost must be pretty. It must they must be serious about cost now because cybersecurity is always the thing. That's why the whole sort of supply chain movement is moving in that direction of adding extra security. It's a big, big problem. So to have costs come up and say, you know, actually, we think it's slightly more important this year. That's an interesting fact. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That we'll have to uh, we'll have to start following that more closely. And by we, I mean Ed. <laughs> I will find some facts and figures. They will be entirely unreliable, but I will find some. <laughs> those, those are the best facts and figures. The, the reliable yeah. ones they tend to be, uh, you know, twenty years after the uh, the fact and totally uninteresting. Just like yes. you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a, that's a good check in on uh, things going on this week. As always, if you want to, uh, uh, there'll be some show notes linking to the stuff we've talked about. You can go to tanzutalk.com to check those out. And also, the uh, the Spring One Conference CFP is now open. I think it's going to close sometime in March. Uh, hopefully, for my sake, uh, later in March rather than early, so I can delay doing anything as long as possible. Because uh, because as you two know, I'm always late uh, to things. Yeah, and don't forget VMware Explorer is on at the same time. So their CFP is also open, I believe. So you could put in a paper for either or both or yeah. Yeah. It, it'll it'll be great. And then we have our ongoing uh Golden Pass series, I think once or twice a week happening as well, that you can check out if you go to springone.io. Uh and I think that's about all the uh the promotion we have uh at the end here. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.